Well, for week two of Call of the Wild, we're going to jump into the second chapter of the book of James, and we're getting to read every single verse as we go through these entries uh, in the SOAP journal throughout the week, but we're picking just a few verses to cover and study on the weekends, focusing in on, I've got a message from James chapter two, verses 14 through 26 that I'm calling, Leave No Trace. Leave No Trace. Here's what James says. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you goes to him and says, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds, show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and they shudder. You foolish man. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was accredited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. And Father, I pray that you would, in this moment, meet with us. We're not watching church. We are a part of the church. We're called to participate in what you're doing as the church, as your bride. And we're so grateful that anyone who's listening in, who's come, who's, who's not a part, who's not, they wouldn't say they're a Jesus follower. First of all, I thank you, God, that they're listening, that they're in this moment, that something drew them, something has their attention here, a friend, a, an invitation, a curiosity, or some felt need in their life has caused them to want to seek out some some spiritual answer. And so here they are. We've opened this book that was written by your half-brother, Jesus, and, and we believe in it we can find food, we can find medicine, we can find strength, we can find help in time of need. And we need your help. God, we're lost without you. We're broken, we're, we're, we're not so strong as we think we are. We so easily run out of resources and run out of ideas. <clears throat> and so we ask that as we gather in the name of Jesus, you would be felt and sensed in the midst. You would meet us here and change us. We pray for, for healing. We pray for, for miracles. We pray for salvation. We ask you to help us by your spirit to see what is meant through these words, that we may live differently. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The phrase, leave no trace which pops up when you talk about camping or you talk about hiking or you talk about backpacking. It had its origins in the 1960s. We talked last week a little bit about how in the 60s, President Lyndon B. Johnson signed the Wilderness Act. And uh, right on the heels of that, in that next period, there was, there was an exponential increase 
in the people in this country who were taking advantage of visiting uh, and, 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 and recreating in these parks, in these areas. As an illustration, just to see how, how much it skyrocketed, in that period, hiking and camping and backpacking, that was when it really first became popular. Uh, the national parks in America went from having 33 million visitors in 1950 to 172 million visitors in 1970. So a five-fold increase. For 1950, it was 30 million. And then by flash forward 1970, every year you had 172 million visitors to the park system, which... Uh, they say in 2019, that number was 327 million visitors to national parks uh, in, in just that one year. I can't even imagine what it's going to come out as having been, uh, because this year it seems like they have just been so ridiculously crowded. Uh, but of course, it's not just the national park system. It's also the Bureau of Land Management land and the National Forest Service land. And so in all of uh, people going into these lands, they had to sort of realize uh, the hard way that uh, in the words of one pamphlet, America was loving her parks to death. We were loving our parks to death, uh, meaning so many visitors were going in and there were not really rules as to what you could do in these lands. And so uh, it, was, it was quickly eroding and overcrowding. And so they, they basically formulated this slogan uh, which was, you know, as, as effective and as powerful as the smoky bear, you know, only you can prevent forest fires, this idea of when you go into these areas, what should be your, your ethics? What should be your mentality? And maybe you're watching now and, you know, you have never been to a, a national park or you've never camped in, you know, national forests and, and you, you don't really understand the psychology of, of those who want to conserve the beauty of this area, uh, then the leave no trace principle is a good guiding rule of thumb. And there are seven things, as, it's, as, it's, as it was elaborated in the 80s and the 90s, that have become now the seven principles of the leave-no-trace ethic. And, and it's basically this. Number one, plan ahead and prepare. Basically, think about it. Have contingencies. What might happen? What could go wrong? Uh, what, what, what do you need in these areas? What, what, what is offered? What is not offered? Travel, number two, and camp on durable surfaces. Don't put your tent at the edge of a river that could easily overrun its banks or you know, land that could crumble. Um, number three, dispose of waste properly. This is one worth taking a moment and talking about. I will say so because last week my family and I went camping on some national forest land. And we, like we always do when we are going to be in an area where there's not bathrooms, we bring one of these. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is a, uh, a shovel that you can bring with you because if there's not a toilet, you need to bury the things that you <laughs> deposit on the ground. And I'm telling you, without getting too crass, we were camping in an area where as soon as you went uh, into the woods a little bit, there was just piles of human waste with toilet paper, human waste with toilet paper, human waste with toilet paper, everywhere, as far as the eye could see. So what you're supposed to do is bring a little shovel in and dig a hole six to eight inches deep, and that's where the waste goes, but the toilet paper and feminine products go out with you because they'll get dug up otherwise. And so just a friendly reminder to whoever camped there before we did, uh, leave no trace does not just mean poop on the ground and then run away. That's, that's not what that means. So dispose of the waste properly. Get a little shovel and use it, somebody. Um, Number four, leave what you find. So don't, you don't be taking everything with you. If everyone took a souvenir, if everyone 
grab something from it, right? What would be left? Number five, minimize campfire impacts. Obviously so important in the era of, uh, well, the, in, in because of the reality of fire, fires that always, you always want to check what's legal and what's allowed with what fires you can have. Make sure they're all put out. Um, so many of these fires that we read about tragically are, are man-made and inadvertently done. Um, respect wildlife, number six. And then, of course, number seven, be considerate of other visitors. How fast you drive on dusty roads and how loud you blare your music. We're all very impressed by your power zero thing that can charge your enormous speakers. And yet we went to nature to be quiet, right? And so all of these things, right? That's, that's the seven ideas of, 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 of the, the leave no trace land ethics, uh, which essentially boils down to treading lightly. The beauty of these parks, the beauty of this land is, the, is that we go in there to experience it and, and we want to minimize uh, how much we change it, how much we alter it. Because as Roosevelt said, we want to build this country, we want to we think through the ages. So hopefully our great-great-grandchildren can experience this land and see it as it was when the Native Americans were, were, were hunting buffalo hundreds and hundreds of years ago. And to think about, like, we want to do our best to, to keep these things wild. And as we said, it takes work to keep things wild. No, leave No Trace essentially boils down to one word, and that word is impact. Minimizing your, your impact. So that if someone came after you were there and camped at the same area that you camped at, that they would not notice your impact. Uh, the hope is, leaving, that no one would ever know that you were there. I bring this all up because when God comes into a life, it's the exact opposite. When God comes into a heart, what James is saying is that uh, it's a travesty if God has come into your life, but no one can see any evidence that he was there. If, if God comes into your life and it's only just words, yeah, God's in my life, but people who interact with you see no visible impact of his presence whatsoever. And that is exactly the opposite of what God wants. He wants to disrupt. He wants to change. He wants to heal. He wants to alter. He wants it to be where if someone encounters someone who's a, a follower of Jesus, they can sense him all over the place. In fact, that really is on the back of James's mind as he writes this letter. If we can just jump ahead to chapter four, verse five, he says, the spirit that God breathed into our hearts is a jealous lover who intensely desires to have more and more of us. So what he's saying is, he's saying, once you invite the God of the wild, once you invite the God who breathes out stars, once that spirit comes into you, it's going to change you. It's going to impact you for the better. And he's always going to be wanting more parts of your life he can work in, more, more areas of your mind that he can, he can have his way in. He's, always seek, he's never done with you. And he's, 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 not got, he's not gotten bored with you. The salvation is not the, the finish line. In fact, it's just the starter's pistol. It's just, it's just the commencement. It's just the beginning. It's just scratching the surface of all he wants to do. His spirit is, is, is striving inside of you, wanting to change. Like, as you watch this today, I hope you know that God has so much more in store for you. Eye cannot see and ear cannot hear what God has in store for you. He, he's just planning and plotting how he can grow you, change you, 
you, stretch you, use you, how he can build you to where if you met the version of yourself you would become five or 10 years from now, you wouldn't even recognize yourself. He is not about that leave no trace ethic when it comes to your life, when it comes to your heart, when it comes to your mind. He looks at you and says, this is a canvas I can work on. Think of it, the God who built the Bob Marshall Wilderness and had the ingenuity to carve out the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef and, and, and dug the Tetons with his finger. That God looks at your life and goes, I can't wait to get to work. I, yeah, I just, I, he's looking at you, I, I can't, I, I got, and people may have written you off and people may, have, people may have, 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 have counted you out, but not God. Not God, he looks at you and, and if he could breathe light into darkness, he can do something dramatic and remarkable and incredible out of your life. He, he carved Adam from the dust. And even if your life today feels like dust, you feel like you've made so many bad choices and you've, you've made so many wrong turns, you just don't know if there's any even hope. God is not dead. If you're not dead, God's not done. He is, he is only yet to begin to work in your life. He wants to leave a trace of his presence. And that is what James is trying to communicate in the, the passage, in the chapter, in the section that we're reading. That actually begins with the very end of chapter one where he says, what is real religion? What impresses God? What lights God's radar up? And he said, it's taking care of widows. It's caring for orphans. This is why we will always prioritize a percentage of every dollar that's handed to our ministry for us to steward. We will always prioritize the feeding of the homeless and the clothing of the naked and taking care of those who have been displaced. We will always, whether, whether it's hot right now or not, whether there's something going on right now or not, we're always going to be in good times and in bad, laying up, giving out, funding grants, always preparing to give, to say yes to the next dream. So, so, that, so that there may be what lights up heaven happening in this ministry. That's always how we roll. That's, that's, that's what he's, he began. Because God's not going to leave no trace. He's gonna, if he's going to work in your heart, he's gonna be, it's going to begin to affect other people. It's going to begin to touch other people. You're going to see evidence of his hand everywhere. And James wants to communicate that, but he knows that he is in part talking to some people who had foolishly and falsely come up with an idea of faith that allowed them to say God's in my life, but show no evidence whatsoever. And so he uses shocking words to get their attention. He understood that there were, and there always are people at both ends of the spectrum, both on the legalistic side, who are thinking they can, they can, they can do so many good things that God's impressed with them, and then on the other side, uh, there's people who are like, what does it matter how I live? Because I said a prayer one time. What does it matter how I live? Because like, I, I, I own a Bible, or I'm a part of America, which is for sure a Christian nation, so that's got to count for something, right? Or, or, or my mom's a Christian, whatever. There's going to be some people who, who don't at all have any evidence of Jesus having worked. And there's like, where's Jesus? Well, he left no trace, right? It's like, but, but, I, but, I, but I said a prayer, so that should cover this. I should be good because like, I'm totally a believer because at one point, at one time, I said some prayer, did something, crossed myself. Maybe, was I playing a baseball? It was assigned to the pitcher. I'm not even sure, but that probably counts too. And, and so, and, and there's always going to be both sides of the spectrum. And what we're reading here is shocking language that's in intended to feel like, whoa, because it woke you up. Some of you, a couple of verses, you're like, what? That's weird. Like, even if you're going to get to it in your stomach, like, uh, James, uh, one of these things just doesn't belong here. The part where you said, right? And what's happening? Here's what's happening. Paul and James both communicate about 
how, how to have salvation, how the salvation life works its way out. And James, on purpose, picked some language here that people who had been saved under Paul's ministry would, would, would go, that's not right, on purpose, to almost make it seem like, like Paul and, and as you read it, it almost seems like Paul and James need to get into a room and talk some stuff out, right? If they're gonna both write for the same Bible, they should at least get on the same page, right? Because it's like awkward when mom and dad are not on the same page and the kids like can totally tell and mom says one thing and the, kid, the dad says the other and so the kids like know which parent to go to to get one thing. Like that's almost what it seems like is happening here. It's like Paul said this, James says that, but you have to understand they're not big enemies. They're actually really good friends. Let me show it to you, Acts 21, verse 17. This is Luke writing. When we, including Paul, arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James. And all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So he told them all the things he had been communicating. And as, you, as it goes on, you see there's a warmth there and a celebration on, on, on behalf of the whole Jerusalem church, led by James, as we said, over what Paul was preaching. So they, they were simpatico, you, ha, you see. Now, another example, Galatians 2.9. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, we told you I was one of James's nickname, the pillar, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed <clears throat> that we should go to the Gentiles and they go to the Jews. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul says, like, they were pumped on my ministry. They were just like, hey, don't forget about poor people. Now, you laugh when you, when you read that because he wasn't just talking about poor people in general. He was talking about poor people in Jerusalem in specific because there was a big crisis going on in Jerusalem and James led that church. And it was almost like him suddenly being like, hey, don't forget us as you're writing your grant checks. You know, and it's like, hey, don't forget the poor people. Paul's like, I was pumped. I'm gonna take care of you, right? He, he literally did raise support from other churches as he went out to send resources back to the church at Jerusalem. So the idea is it's very clear. James and Paul saw eye, saw eye to eye on how things. So what is happening here then? Uh, here's what's happening. In Paul's writings and in James's writings, we have two eyes looking at the same thing, and both are needed. Let me tell you, I've learned in my life it's important to have two eyes looking, and when you have one eye taken away for a little bit, I bumped into some door jams on this side. I missed some backhands playing tennis, okay? Because I thought that was over here. Well, it's actually with two eyes, you can triangulate where it's at better than you can just with one. And a little update on the eye. I went into the ophthalmologist uh, just this past week, and they did another exam. And this is the craziest thing. It's almost back to normal. I have a little bit of delay in focusing still. where It's just a little bit slower, but it's, but it's getting so much better. But get this. The vision in my left eye now is better than it was before the accident. <laughs> so it's crazy. <laughs> crazy. They had to actually dial my contact lens prescription down in that eye. They're like, man, your eye's gotten so much better. It's like, I was like, cheaper than LASIK. There you are. Okay, so... So not recommended also, right? Results not typical. It's like, well, you said, I got the bottle rocket right here. This is going to be great. All right. 
So, so we're looking at salvation and we're looking at the implications of it and, and, and the mechanism of it from two different perspectives when we read James and we, when we read Paul for the most part. But I want to show you that, that actually it's the same thing. You're just seeing coverage of it from, from both sides. So when we think about salvation, and if you're, if you're new to all this, we're talking about having your soul saved. This is, we're talking about going to heaven when you die. We're talking about being redeemed. We're talking about the wrong things you, you've done uh, being right in God's ledger. So when you stand before him, that you're, you're whole, that you're right, that you're not doomed, that you're not damned, it's, it's, it's being forgiven, it's being, uh, being made right. That's salvation. And Paul always writes, basically, on the subject of salvation, that it's a gift. Yeah. It's a gift. Yeah. You can't earn it. So if you're going to read Paul on salvation, he's going to be going like, hey, don't try to earn it. It's a gift. You, you can't get it on your own. Like in Romans 3.20, where he says very clearly, therefore, by the deeds of the law, Ten Commandments, there's a lot of Christians like pumped on the Ten Commandments. All right, awesome. By the deeds of the Ten Commandments, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Wah, wah, wah. For by the law is what? The knowledge of sin. So when we get the Ten Commandments and we're like, yay, this, it, all it does, according to this, is say, you're, you are not okay. You have a problem, right? You, you're, you're, you're like, well, I haven't done a lot of bad things. No, think about it this way. The, 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 the Ten Commandments essentially form a chain, and that chain suspends you over a chasm. How many of the links in the chain have to break for you to fall? That, that's the same as, as how many sins you have to commit to go to hell. You're like, well, like, if, 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 if I've done more good than bad, I'm probably okay. That's most people's kind of perspective. God's going to just sort of put my good deeds in this side of the scale, bad deeds in this side of the scale, as long as I've done more good than bad. No, no. Do more links have to break than not break for you to fall if you're hanging by a chain? All it takes is one link. And that's what he says in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's a problem. The problem is the reason we were given the law was not so like, okay, everybody, let's try really hard. Let's just not, no one commit adultery, no one lie, you don't steal. Okay, all right, got it. No, no, all we get when we look in the Ten Commandments is, you're screwed, pal. Because if you broke one of them, you're guilty of all of them. All have sinned and fallen from that chain by the glory, uh, of fallen short of the glory of God. So how can anyone be saved? It can't be earned. It can only be received. Therefore, Paul says, salvation's a gift. And that's the purpose of Jesus, God's son, who came to this world in human skin. Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. So salvation doesn't come into your a heart because it was, it, was, it, was, it was deserved. It comes into your heart because it was received by faith. If you believe that God's son Jesus did what he did on your behalf, that he lived a perfect life, died a death that should have been yours and should have been mine, and instead of, of staying dead because he was perfectly God and did not deserve and never sinned, he was raised to life, and then he can grant salvation and grant immortality and grant power and forgiveness to anybody who believes in him. Because only someone who did what he did can make the kind of claims that he made. He backed it up when he rose from the dead. And he said, all right, anybody want some of what I got? It's all yours for the taking. He's like Oprah. You get one, you get one, you get one. All you got to do is believe in me. So if you're right with God today, 
It cannot be, Paul says, because you kept enough good deeds, gave enough money away, did any amount of religious superstitious services, were christened as a baby, confirmed as a Lutheran, you know, stopped drinking and cussing as a Baptist, right? Uh, Whatever you you would think, like, that's what gives me strength. No, no, by the deeds of the law, zero people are justified. Paul says, if you're made right with God, it's because of faith in what Jesus did who loved us and gave himself for us. So that's what Paul's about. That's, that's seeing out of the right eye. But guess what? That's how James saw it too. James believed the same thing. And you read it in verse 18, if, if you got that far in your journey. And he said, in verse 18, speaking of salvation, he chose to give birth to us. How? By giving us his true word. A gift. How does new birth come into a heart? Received as a gift. So if you have new birth, was it earned? No, it was received because he gave us his true word. Who's his true word? Who's God's true word? Jesus. John chapter one, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. He gave us his son, he gave us his true word. And then look at this. And we, out of all creation, became his prized possession. How precious is it to be loved by God? How precious is it that God says, you, marred, sinful, broken, damaged, treacherous, a traitor, an idolater, murderer, that I love you. I will die not just for you, I will die as you. And you are, you are now his prized possession. You are loved, you're loved by God. Go to sleep tonight. I don't care what you do today. I don't care what goes wrong. Go to sleep tonight just remembering, like let it be your last thought. Like I'm God's prized possession. I'm loved by God. The enemy will whisper that you don't matter. He'll whisper that the world will be better without you. You know what? It's a lie. The devil is a liar, and he's a thief, and he's a murderer, and has been so from the beginning. The truth is you are loved by God. The truth is you can never add to you or subtract from his love. You, you'll never have it be based on you, but placed on you. It, it's, it's a mess to live a performance mentality where you are always riding and falling. I had a great week, so God must really be proud of me. I had a productive day, so wow, I'm, I feel so important. No, you're just loved. You are just loved before you do anything. You are just loved endlessly by God who made you his prized possession. He could have picked any part of creation. He chose you. And you were on the mind of Jesus as he cried out, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they do before he died on that cross. So what's salvation? Paul and James say it's a gift. All right, now what about all this that James is about? Because James is like, nope, (laughs) here. Here. James is saying stuff like verse 18, or rather, uh, verse, verse 17. Isn't it obvious that God talk without God acts is outrageous nonsense? And we're reading out of the message translation there. I just think he puts it so well. James is saying, but hold on. Yes, yes, yes. He, he already established it. Chapter 1, verse 18 Salvation's a gift. New birth comes not from earning it, but because God gave it and made us his prized possession. So the gospel in James is clear. What is it? It's a gift. He's already said that. But what is he also wanting us to understand? If that God who breathes out stars comes to live in you, you will live differently. If God comes in you, there's gonna be a trace. There's gonna be signs of life. When he comes and camps inside your heart, he packs heavy right? He brings his gifts. He brings his spirit. He br- the spirit strives in you earnestly, always wanting, intensely desiring to have more and more of you. He's not going to leave you the way you were. He's going to be changing and stirring and tweaking and messing and fixing and p- 
prodding. And man, he is, he is an intense person to have stay at your heart forever. Right? So, so, so yes, James says salvation's a gift, but he also goes, and if that gift's received, it's gonna have an impact on your daily life. You live differently when God lives in you. And guess what? Paul said the same thing. So we saw salvation from Paul's eye that we normally look at, but then we got a flush over from James and go, yup, yup, okay? But now let's, let's see Paul telling us the same thing that James just told us. This is just a couple chapters later in the book of Romans, chapter six, verse one. After establishing the power of the gospel, that it's not earned, never deserved, only received on the merit of what Jesus did when he dripped down that blood red on Skull Hill, then he goes, well, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Because he had just finished saying, where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. So you feel like you're so bad God can't forgive you? Guess what? The worse your sin is, the bigger God's grace is. Then he said, so, so should we then go, well, I want to sin more. <laughs> that, that grace may abound more. Like, yeah. Like, well, you're going to see it go down tonight, right? If that's true, I can always apologize tomorrow. You're telling me the salvation's in Christ. It doesn't really matter. There's no sin so big. Then let me rack up some sin then and have some fun because I already said that prayer, so I'm probably good. Should we do that, Paul said? Then he answered his own question, certainly not. And that's such an intense phrase, certainly not. One of my Bible college instructors who taught the, the semester of grief that I took, he said it would actually be better to translate that phrase, don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. Another pastor said that it would, it would even be in our culture, the, the exact phrase he used, even, even stronger than don't be stupid, the only way you could probably put it into American 2020 verbiage would be to go, hell no. Should we just sin it up? Since Jesus died on that cross for us, like we're good, he already paid our bills, should we? Like, like imagine, imagine that. Paul says, hell no. Paul says, don't be crazy. Paul says, certainly not. How shall we, he says, who died to sin, live any longer in it? How, how could you possibly think that way? How, how could you in your minds think, Jesus struggled to breathe on a cross, dying for my bill. And I'm gonna stand at the foot and go, while you're up there, could I throw a few more sins on I haven't gotten around to yet? Paul like tastes the feeling of like almost like that throw up in the back of your mouth when he thinks of such a thing. And he says so from the perspectives of someone who identified as the chief of sinners. He couldn't believe God would ever forgive him. He couldn't believe God would forgive someone like him who murdered Jesus' followers. And so for him, who is so grateful to be forgiven and so unbelievably amazed by the power and wonder of grace, to think that anybody would then be cavalier or calloused or, or in any way clinical about, oh yeah, bill's been paid, we're good. To him, it just doesn't comp compute. That just does not resonate with the heart of someone who's had the God of the universe forgive them. And so what does Paul say? Paul says what James says. If God comes to live in you, your whole perspective changes. You live differently. He leaves a trace. 
He doesn't just take photos and leave footprints, man. He brings in the wrecking ball. He's changing stuff. He's working. He's, he's causing you to see things differently. He's, you won't even recognize yourself, what you once cared about, what you once obsessed about, what, what mattered the most to you before. You're like, I, 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 no, I'm a di- I see it differently. I'm changed. I've been bought. I'm not headed to hell. I'm not dead. I'm alive. I have the spirit. I have heaven. I have the family of God. I have this opportunity. I, I, I just want to please him. I want to do what makes God happy. Oh, oh, so, so, so that he doesn't cast you in hell. No, he already decided that. He's not going to. He promised me he wouldn't. I want to live not to earn his favor, but because I have his favor. And that's the difference. That's the shift. That's the pivot. That's the place we come to. Once we understand the power of grace, because uh, yes, there's no sin you could commit as a Christian that he, that he couldn't forgive. But knowing that makes you not want to take advantage of that. Right? Like I, I think about how if you were in a restaurant and someone came up to your, your table and said, hey, just so you know, the bill's been paid. You're like, oh, I haven't given my card yet. No, no. Another family was in here. They took care of your bill for you. Like would your immediate reaction be like, well, we should order dessert. Like that's not your, your mentality. The mentality is how gracious of somebody to do that for me. How kind of someone to, to, to think of me in that way. And you're almost in your heart like, man, I, do I have any cash on me? Because if they've already paid the bill, I'm not going to have the chance to write a credit card tip. I need, to, I need some cash to leave this lady an extra tip. I want to I wanna make sure that she's extra taken care of. Like your, your, your mentality changes when you really comprehend the power of a sacrifice. And so that's what Paul says on salvation, what James said. And that's what James says about what happens when God comes to live in you, which is what Paul says. So really, it's the same perspective. One is speaking, Paul speaking, about how to get saved primarily. And James is primarily trying to communicate about how to know you're saved and how to live out of the power of salvation so it can impact the rest of the world. The chief confusion comes down to the use of the word justified in verse 24. When Paul and James speak about justification, that's what causes the biggest confusion. But I think what clears it up is knowing that there are two uses of the word justify. Justify, of course, is a court term, and we think of like a court declaring someone acquitted, justified. You go free. And that's what happens when Christ died for you. You were justified when you received that salvation. God the Father slams the gavel down, case dismissed. You're free. It's like you never sinned, just as if I'd never sinned. That's an easy way to remember justify. Just as if I'd never sinned. That's how God looks at you. Um, but, 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 but that's not the way James uses it because there's a secondary use of the word justification. Because when you talk about the court sense, we're talking about something being made righteous, something being made to be true, declared to be true. But there's also a, a sense in which justification can be proving something's true. Uh, hey, I, I couldn't go to school today. I'm sick. Awesome. Uh, gonna need to see a doctor's note. What are you doing when you bring the doctor's note to your school? You're justifying the, the absence. Uh, reconciling credit card receipts. Oh, there's a business expense. Cool. Who was at the dinner? What was discussed? Was it business or was it actually not? You're justifying the use of those resources. You're in that case not making something true. You're proving something's true. So when Paul talks about justification in his letters, he is almost always using the first sense and talking about justification as God's action of declaring us righteous. That's how he almost always uses it. But James is using it in the secondary sense here when he says in verse 24, a person is justified by what he does and not just by faith alone. 
And you go, ah, nope, God slams the gavel. And stop, he's using the second definition. He's saying something is not made to be true by the works, but proved to be true by the works. In fact, he's saying this is how you can know you're a Jesus person, and this is how the world will get to see that you're a Jesus person, because he came into your heart, and that act of justification, you then get the opportunity now to prove that it really happened to the world by them getting to see the traces that he has left all over your heart and life by the way he has changed your soul. Hopefully, that clears it up for you just a little bit. And this is important stuff here because as G.K. Chesterton put it, by far the most powerful argument against the truth of Christianity are Christians. The biggest argument against the truth of Christianity are Christians. What Jesus says seems great, but I have met some Jesus people. No, maybe you've met some people that James wrote to correct. Maybe you've met some people who think that just owning a Bible is enough or just being able to to check Christian in a box is enough or having said a prayer is enough but haven't actually seen Jesus invade their souls and invade their lives. And we, Fresh Life Church, we are called to be people that are winsome, that are loving, that, that people who are around us who don't even believe what we believe love how we live. And that's the key word, love. The key word here is love, and you will understand that in a moment. But first, let me really try and leave our time. I want you to walk away from this time crystal clear. So on your page that says notes under this week's message, where you have a chance to write the sermon notes, I want to give you four things that are crystal clear that you can walk away. And the first is this. Salvation is a moment. Salvation is a moment. That's a time when you pass from death to life. That's, that's an instant where you, you did not know Jesus, now you do. I ask people, are you a Christian? I think so. If I asked you, are you married, would you say I think so? Right? It's like, no, either you are or you aren't. You did or you didn't. Did, have you, if, if, if the answer is I don't know, then let's, let's settle that today. And I'll give you a moment where you can do that in just a few minutes. Salvation is a moment. It happens. Here we go. Instantly. Instantly. You trust Jesus. He comes into your heart. He makes you new. He says, I stand at the door and knock. If you let me in, I will come in. Just be, buyer beware. You let him in. You give him moose a muffin. You give Jesus a seat at the table. He's going to want access to the guest room and the den and the, and the internet history. He's going to want to come in and change stuff, but for the better. It's going to be wild. Not going to be predictable. He is not a tame lion, okay? Number two, fruitless faith is an oxymoron. That's what James is actually saying. The reason he says, oh, he keeps using this like, can this faith save that person? Okay, okay, let's say that you have faith but no works. And he keeps saying that, but it's tongue in cheek because he knows what you need to know. Such a thing doesn't exist. So this person who's this hypothetical objector that he uses, which I love that he like lets a person like raise the objection and then he argues against them. James is awesome, right? And as he does this, what is he doing? He's, intri- he's, he's, he's indulging a concept that he knows some people believe can exist but actually doesn't exist. That's why he says in verse 14, can such faith save him? If there was a guy who claims to have faith but doesn't have deeds, can such faith save him? He doesn't say, can faith save him? He's saying, such faith. He is instantly declaring the notion of a person who claims to have faith but nothing in their life indicates the presence of Jesus living in their soul. He's saying that's not faith at all. So such faith is a suspect faith. Uh, He's saying that fruitless faith is an oxymoron. Why? Because just as salvation happens in a moment instantly, when Jesus comes into your life, there will be fruit inevitably. 
fruitless faith is an oxymoron for there will inevitably, inevitably, inevitably be change in your life as Jesus comes to live inside your soul. And what should we be looking for when we talk about fruit of Jesus being there? The answer is simple. It's a four-letter word, and it's love. The royal law of love, James called it. You read it earlier in the book. That's what it's all about. There's gonna be love. If a Christianity, if a man's Christianity does not make him kind, it is not real. It will begin to make you kind. There, there will be demonstrable moments of just greater love. Love, 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 love. Love that looks like compassion. That's why he said if you see a dude who's naked and hungry and you're like, hey, bro, have a good meal, but you don't give him anything, that's, that, that didn't happen. That's not compassion. That's not, that's not real. You didn't do anything for that guy. There needs to be, it's gonna be compassionate love. There's also gonna be courageous love. He references Rahab who took a bold stand, did something scary, did something risky. There's gonna be a a recklessness to your love. There's gonna be a boldness to your love. You're gonna have love that's compassionate, love that's courageous. Thirdly, love that's got commitment written all over it. A great commitment to following Jesus. That love is gonna show itself in ways that, 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 that demonstrate commitment meaning things that are precious, you lay at his feet. Things that mean a lot to you, you're, you're willing to say, if it never happens, I'll walk away from it. I want you more than I want this dream. I want you more than I want this thing. And that, he appeals to Abraham, who, who took the most precious thing in his life and was willing to say, hey, if, you, if, this, if, this, if this is being taken from me, so be it. I, though none go with me, still I will follow. Love expressed through compassion, courage, and commitment. And then the third thing, write this down. But know this, progress is a journey. Progress is a journey. So yes, there will be faith, there will be love, there will be change, but guess what? In you, in me, in all of us, it's gonna be imperfectly. Instantly, inevitably, imperfectly. Meaning, there's gonna be a gap, there's gonna be a journey, it's gonna be a growth. No one's gonna get it right all the time, because some of us are in this going, dang it, I don't love perfectly. Yeah, welcome to the club of being broken and being selfish and being marred. It's a journey. But the two examples he gave of Abraham and Rahab actually, to me, comfort me because I know a little bit of the backstory. Yeah, Genesis 15, uh, Abraham trusted God when he said, your descendants will be like the stars. And then, yes, he did lay down the most precious thing in the world to him, his son. And like the text says, God, I'll give it to you. But guess what? There's a 40-year gap in between Genesis 15 and Genesis 22. And in that gap was a lot of mistakes and a lot of brokenness and a lot of regrets and a lot of going the wrong way and a lot of doubting. So yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a great faith moment, trust me, and there's a great hero moment of him doing something awesome, but there was a whole journey in between. I just wanna encourage some of you. You've trusted Christ, you've walked with him. There's a little bit of growth, but you're discouraged because you're not at that epic moment. And, and you read Genesis 15, you read Genesis 22, but you know there was four decades in between. And I just want to encourage you that any progress is to be celebrated. A little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. God's excited for you. He's, he's, a, he's cheering you. He's, 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 just, he's not done yet. Just don't give up yet. But also don't get discouraged because you haven't done more than you have. And then finally, and this is really important, boiling this all down to one statement, the preposition changes everything. The preposition changes everything. And it does so eternally, eternally. We're saved instantly if we've trusted Christ. There's gonna be fruit inevitably, but imperfectly. But if you get the wrong preposition, the stakes are high because we're talking about eternally. 
eternally. What, what preposition are you talking about? I'm talking about the difference between about and in. About and in. He said, this is verse 19. You say you believe in God. Or you say you, you believe there is a God. But so do the demons, and they tremble. They shudder. You say you believe there's a God. So, so here's what he's saying. You say you believe about God. The demons also believe and know better than we do that there's a God. The difference is, the world of difference is between about and in. So here's my question to you. Do you know things and believe things about God? I believe that there is a God. I believe there is a Jesus. There's a historical figure for sure. I believe even that the crucifixion did happen. I, 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 for sure, I believe that's true intellectually. That's different than believing in him. I can stand here and say, I believe that stool will hold me. But until I sit down, it doesn't. And, and the demons from hell shudder knowing there is a God. The preposition that changes everything is whether you believe about him or you believe in him. And that's what makes someone God's friend. Abraham was a friend of God. God is a good, I mean, he's, he's a good friend. He demonstrated his love towards us and that he sent his own son Jesus to die for us. What greater love could ever be seen? That's like, you have friends in your life, like, I don't know about that person. They don't seem to be much of a friend. Like, look at God, that's a friend. It's not, what a great friend to have. So why not make that decision today to pass from death to life? That's, that was me. I grew up in church knowing all about God. But there came a defining moment, a turning point, a, 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 a fork in the road. My ninth grade year of high school, just at the beginning at a summer camp where I heard the gospel presented. I'd heard it a thousand times, even responded to a million sinners' prayers. But in that moment, I just knew he was knocking on the door of my heart. It was a moment for me not just to believe about him, to know about him, but to put my faith in him, to follow him. And I made that decision, and it was the best decision I've ever made. And I have watched God work imperfectly, but steadily and constantly and insatiably in my life. And I have watched him change me, and I, I have so much more to go, but I, I just want that for you. And if you've never made such a decision to put your faith in Christ, I believe that the Holy Spirit has brought us to this moment. You might have thought you just saw this on Facebook or you got sent a link or your friend invited you over from, for some Eggs Benedict and to watch something on TV and, and, and here you are. And in this moment, God wants to bring you to a place where heaven invades your soul. Heaven's peak is what's on the image behind me. It's in Glacier National Park. But better than scaling a mountain peak is opening up your heart to Jesus Christ and, and watching that wild invade your soul. Yeah. So here with our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you're ready to trust Jesus, I just want you to say this simple prayer to receive the gift of salvation. God, please come into my heart. Make me new. I give myself to you. I receive your grace bought by your son. Now give me new life through his resurrection power. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.